0: Well, welcome, everybody. I hope you're doing well. We're in Psalm uh, 6, the sixth psalm, and um, i kind of s- start with that review of the first three verses real quickly. But I gave it a title, Deliver, deliver Me From Your Chastening, or if you will, from your discipline. Uh, the psalmist, and as the superscription tells us, it is David. So David is under God's discipline, God's chastening at this point. Um, We are not sure why. It could, although it does not say that, it could relate to the discipline of God under uh, David um, after his sin with Bathsheba. But we're not sure. So I'm not sure we can identify a specific point. Um, I want to review. So this is really an important point. I want to make sure this is clear to everyone. It's more of background, but it, it's, it's an important point so we don't misunderstand. When the term discipline or chastening or whatever is used, it is for the believer. We're not talking about God disciplining an unbeliever. We're not talking about a, a, a person who has not put their faith in God. Uh, discipline, uh, chastening, is God's method as our Heavenly Father, Of dealing with his children and because we live on this side of the cross uh, we enter into God's family when we put our faith in Jesus Christ his Son and his finished work and so on and therefore that relationship between God changes from condemned sinner to judge of the universe to child of God and Heavenly Father. That's an important point to always remember and so Psalm 6 is about the Heavenly Father chastening one of his children who had put his faith and reliance in God, David is a man after God's own heart, and so on. And I should add, because this also is important background, that Hebrews chapter 12 is is quite an important chapter on us understanding, again, this perspective about God's chastening, God's disciplining of his children when they get off the track of obedience, Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us it confirms that we are his child, and it confirms that he loves us. And in that passage in Hebrews 12, it also states that the purpose of God's discipline is that we will become like his son, that we will become in the likeness of his son, righteous that we will be back on the track of walking with him in obedience. And let me make one further comment. The goal of discipline of God's chastening is not punitive. It is restorative. And that, again, is really what Hebrews 12 is telling us. So that's all, I think, important background. I don't want you to misunderstand that uh, often, at least in my years of ministry, I've i found that a lot of time Christians don't understand what that really means. And so hopefully this quick overview has helped you to, to just be reminded of that. So the, the author, it's David, O oh Lord, and verse 1, Psalm 6, O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, discipline, chasten me in your aunt, nor chasten me in your wrath. And again, we looked at that last week, but the language that he's using in verse 1 is the language of chastening he's under the disciplinary hand of God we don't know why we don't know the circumstances but he is and so verse two again we've covered this last week let me quickly review it so his appeal to God is be gracious <clears throat> excuse me be gracious to me for I am languishing heal me O Lord from my bones are troubled So the sense of this language, it is a little bit bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration. But he is withered, he's weakened, he is absolutely worn out. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever has been happening to him, he is absolutely weak and distressed. He's at the end. My soul is greatly troubled, verse 3, but you, oh Lord, how long? And it ends and I commented on that last week, it's, it's like he breaks it off, and, and it's, it's kind of frustrating for us, but he's saying, in effect, I think, how long is this gonna go on, or How long are you gonna let this, this go on? And so, uh, is it desperation? Possibly. Is he ready for it to come to an end? Yes. If the goal of discipline of God's chastening is always to restore us, so is King David at that point where I'm ready to be restored? I've learned what you want me to learn, God. Well, look at verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So I think what we see in verse 4 and verse 5, and if you look at the the notes, uh, this is an appeal to God's loyal love. I've said this before in our study of the Psalms of the last week or two, I recall saying something like this. David really knew his God. He knew God's character. He knew God's attributes. he 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 knew... He knew his God in a powerful way. He really understands him. His only hope is God's deliverance. His only hope is that loyal covenant love. Uh, ESV is the translation I'm using, translates that steadfast love. And I believe we talked about that last week. The Hebrew word for that is chesed. It's faithful, loyal, steadfast love. It's the Covenant love of God for His people, in in the Old Testament, that loyal covenant love was, of course, the covenant of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant love for you and me, this side of the cross, which Jesus inaugurated, is the new covenant. This isn't. Um, I want to make sure this isn't just theological stuff I'm dumping on you. This is really important. Practical truth for each one of us that that is listening here to my voice: you are in a covenant relationship with the living God, and that covenant relationship with the living God, this side of the cross, is called the New Covenant. So that Chesed, that steadfast, loyal covenant love, applies to you and to me as well as to King David in the time he's writing this. This is roughly a thousand BC, so about three thousand years ago. So what I'm trying to get you to see here and just think about and even meditate upon is in, in David's understanding of his relationship with the living God, he frames that relationship as a covenantal relationship. This is a relationship that's not based on a flippant, flimsy, fair weather kind of understanding of God. Oh, my no. He understands that his discipline, chastening hand of God, if I can put it this way, he deserves it. But he also understands his God is gracious. His God is merciful. And he appeals to that covenant love for his deliverance in verse 4. Deliver me. I'm, I'm learning my lesson, God. Save me. For the sake of your covenant love, on the basis of your covenant love, because of your covenant love for me, okay. Now let me let me stop there. I've said an awful lot. Some of it was in review, and some of it was to again try to provide the context for biblically understanding chastening and discipline. But any everybody with me? Any questions? Uh,
1: yes, um, I have one on on uh, verse two. It says, yeah. uh, "My bones are troubled." Is that an idiom? Or is could that um, indicate that it's a health issue that he's facing, kind of like the thorn in
0: the flesh? Um, that's that's a good that's a good question. It it seems, uh, Russ, as if bones there I, in my in my Bible. I actually put um, quotation marks around bones because he's probably means more than just, you know, his physical bones. He's talking about an emotional spiritual distress. You know, like we'll say I'm for example, we'll say I'm bone tired. If, if uh-huh. you had an exhausting day or something like that. I'm bone tired. Well, that you don't really mean by that that your bones are exhausted. It's just a metaphor for how deep and 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 thoroughgoing is your exhaustion. I think that's how he's using this for us. That my bones are troubled. I am at the pit of emotional and spiritual distress. I'm physically, emotionally, and spiritually worn out. Is this I think a that's common?
1: What is this a common idiom uh, in the language at the time,
0: or is this something that we're trying to construct to figure out? Well, no, I think I think this is uh, fairly common. It. it common in the sense that you see things like this in other psalms actually you often you also see it in some of the laments of job in his dialogue with his friends eliphaz bildad and zophar as well as some of the dialogues he has with god he does use that kind of language so i think it's a fairly i i think i can say it this way it's a fairly common idiom to just to describe using figurative language d- emotional and spiritual and physical distress thank you again the, i would compare it to when you and i say i'm bone tired or i'm dog tired right yeah 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 you bet <laughs> okay that, that's good good question okay now look at verse <clears throat> this is really interesting look at verse 5 you really get you really get a sense of what, what David, he's kind of reached a turning point here. He's he's understanding, he's turning from his sin, he's understanding why God's chastened and discipline, and he says, for, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Lord, you and I are in a covenant relationship. Because, or for, in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, here probably Sheol just means the grave, who will give you praise? Isn't that is not saying that to God? No, no, that, just Lord. Let's talk about this now. If you take this to the point where you're going to bring me home, there's no remembrance of you. There's no literally in remembrance. There's no praise of you in death. And she, oh, when I'm in the grave, who's going to give you praise? He wants. Listen to me. I'm sorry. You are listening to me, but I'm just saying what he wants to do here, Lord. I want to continue a life of faithful obedience to you. I want to continue to be restored now to that vibrant, robust walk with you. Lord, I want to glorify you. Lord, I want my life to count for you. In death, in the grave, I won't have the opportunity to do that anymore. Of course, until the new heaven, the new earth, and I get my resurrected body. But So he's really, he's, he's using a really remarkable expression of what I think David really understood. My life exists to bring glory to you, O oh God. And if I die, that's going to end. If I go into the grave, that's going to end. I don't want it to end. So he's... His faith is being strengthened through this disciplinary um, uh, chastening experience with his God. And he's back to, here's the purpose of my life, Lord. I want to bring glory to you. And if I go into the grave, I won't be able to do that anymore. And I'm not ready to stop that. I remember, if you, if I were to ask you guys, and I, I mean if you want to do it you can but I would ask you I'd like you to sit down take a half sheet of paper and write a mission statement for your life what would that look like Jim Eckman exists too you know like if you have a company or a business or a school I mean any almost all of them have mission statements I think they should that's very important it, explained why you exist, and so on. But in a way, David is reminding the Lord of his mission statement. Lord, I exist to bring glory to you. And if I go into the grave, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. And I don't want to stop doing that. It's almost like he's back to, Lord, I've learned my lesson. I am restored to that relationship with you. I want to get back to doing what is the mission and purpose of my life to bring glory to you because when I'm dead and i'm in the grave i'm not going to be able to do that anymore i'm not ready to die yet I know that's ultimately up to you so it's it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic turning point is David learning the lesson is David getting um how, what's the best way to put that? Getting the purpose, deep-seated purpose of why God has disciplined him. I would say from verse four, he's t- he's turned the corner. Yes, yes. Now he's not done. He's, there's things he still wants to say to the Lord, but it's 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 a fantastic, it's a fantastic reminder that you and I exist to bring glory to God. And I think if I were to ask you to write your mission statement, your personal mission statement, somewhere in that mission statement should be the glory of God. That, that's what 1 Corinthians 10 so clearly states for us. So anyway, I, um, I, I got a little bit off the track there, but yet I think it's quite important to see, in essence, what David is saying to his God. It, it's quite remarkable, actually. You got that? Any, any questions about that? It's, it's a wonderful thing to think about for our lives. All right, good.
2: Jim, um, yeah. one thing. Um, so when we're having difficulty in our life, uh, we go to the Lord and, and we ask him to show us the way out of this and, and draw close to him. Um, so that we allow him to show us how to move from where we are to where we want to be in him, through him, by him. Um, And does he want that as much as we need that, you think?
0: Absolutely. Yep,
2: absolutely. So the dialogue should be open. Absolutely. And
0: and all, yeah, okay. Absolutely. You know, um, th- this is another thing that um, if you and I, each one of you and I were sitting across one another, there was no one else in the room, and we each had a cup of coffee, and we're just sitting there and talking. And I just ask you, can you share a point in your life where you know for certain God was chastening you? Where God was disciplining you? If you're very intellectually honest and spiritually honest, I think every one of us will be able to say, "Yes, I can cite some things." I remember. Let me share something because it, it it was very clear to me um, when I was in leadership at a school I was president of here in town for 20 years. I was in leadership. I traveled a great deal, and uh, sometimes I would fly, sometimes I would drive. This was a, a this was a Sunday, and I was. Preaching at a church in central Nebraska, and I needed to be back in Omaha for an evening uh, speaking engagement. So, I had um, I had left the church. It was about 1.30, uh, be one thirty, quarter two, I believe, and I had a pretty good distance to go. So, you know, if you those of you who know what central Nebraska is like, and you can you can drive for miles, and there's no human being. You see cows. You see steers but you don't see humans. And so I was really clipping clipping along. I mean, I was really clipping along. And I always, always would just feel, you know, I really shouldn't be going this fast. But I'm in the Lord's work. And I have more work to do tonight. So I would keep going. It was 75, 80 miles an hour. And, um, well, I'm not going to tell you the town because you could probably go talk to the policeman and he would tell you all about it. This was a long time ago, but he might remember it. It was really fascinating. All of a sudden, this policeman pulls up out of nowhere with his his bubble gone with red and his siren going. So I pull over and he. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I put my Bible very visibly on the passenger side so he'd see my Bible and had my notes. And. I had the radio on with a Christian station. Isn't that awful? You see the depths of my iniquity, don't you? So anyway, he you know he gets out of his car and comes up, windows down, and he, he tells me how fast I was going. And I said, yes, I know that. And I just explained where I was and I said where I was going. He said, well, uh, he said, you have two choices. Uh, I'm going to give you a ticket and it's pretty heavy fine with it was a $125 fine, or you can go to a class. And uh, that class, of course, uh, you would not have to pay the fine, and then you would not get the points for your concern you have for your insurance. And I said, okay, well, let me think about it. Well, I thought that I could go to the class in Omaha, because Omaha has those from what I found out. I couldn't. I had to go to the one in Lincoln because Perry County is where I got the ticket. So I went to Lincoln, it was off. it was an all-day Saturday. And uh, the state trooper who was leading the class it was all day, eight hours this was the first time he ever taught the class. It was absolutely horrible. I mean, it was I never, ever thought those eight hours would end. And I kept saying to the Lord, Lord, I know why you were doing this. I know why you were doing this. You are chastening me for disobeying, thinking that I am above the law, and because I'm your servant, I can get away with anything. And I just kept saying, I know, Lord, this is your chastening hand upon me. I mean, that. I don't know if you've ever been to any of those. The only time I've ever been to one is classes. I mean, it's just unbelievable. (laughs) And when you have a guy, this is the first time he's ever taught the class. I mean, it was sheer Protestant purgatory. It was just unbelievable. But I understood what God was doing, and I, I kept saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to do the best I can, depending on you, to not do that when I'm going to these preaching assignments. So, anyway, if all of I shared something a little bit humorous, but I, there was no doubt in my mind why that happened. No doubt in my mind. And so I, I learned something from that. It was just a simple little lesson, but if you're going to represent me, Represent me well, including obeying the traffic laws of the counties you drive through. So I said, "Got it, Lord." So that's all I have to say about that, as Far Gump said 21 and a half years ago. Are you ready to go to verse six? Amen. We Amen. all can
2: agree with that.
0: What? What was that? Okay, got it.
2: We all we all can agree with that, Jim. We were. Most of us were there at some time uh, in our lives, so it's good.
0: (laughs) Verse 6 and verse 7. The expression of his grief. He's grieving under the hand of God's discipline of his chastening. And he tells the Lord this, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Now, that's obviously hyperbole, exaggerated language. But he is saying to the Lord, I am emotionally and physically and spiritually drained. He must must mean that this has brought tears. This has brought grief. This has brought agony for him. My eye, verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I want to talk about that last phrase in a moment. But the, in the measure of his grief, the measure of his, of his weakening, is his weeping. Why is he crying? Why? We don't know. He doesn't tell us the reason. He doesn't tell us the specifics. But he's sharing with the Lord the great incessant weeping and agony he has experienced. What has God put him through? What has God allowed him to go through? What has God permitted him to go through? We don't know. But there's a key phrase at the end of verse 7. Because of all my foes. Now, ESV has translated the word foes, F-O-E-S. It could be enemies. What is that telling us? The instrument of God's discipline was other people. The instrument of God's discipline in David's life at this point were his enemies. Who are they? What were they doing? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. Obviously, he doesn't need to tell God that because God knows. But what we're looking at here, let me go down a bunny trail real quickly. But God uses three primary instruments. For his discipline. I know this only because it's in the Bible in lots of different places pulling them together. First instrument of God's discipline is his word. Every one of you listening to my voice or part of this, this, this meeting knows that this is, happens to you. Maybe every day it happens to me a lot in a given week. time. I'm reading the Bible and all of a sudden there's something I read that convicts me. Something that I read and I say, oh, my Lord, I'm coming up short on this. Oh, Lord, I, this, this this describes me. You, you want me to deal with this, don't you, Lord? That's the disciplinary instrument of God. He uses his word. Remember, as we said a moment ago, we are God's heavenly father. Uh, he is our heavenly father. We are his child by faith in, in his son. Therefore, just like a father, when I was raising my kids, you say something to your children to correct them or get them back on the track of obedience, and they respond. Your word has just been an instrument of discipline. Your word has just been an instrument of correction. They're back on the track. God's word's like that. And that happens to us over and over and over again in our lives. Secondly, God uses other people. Here is an example of it at the end of verse 7. Whoever they are, whatever the circumstances are, whatever the specifics are, it is the enemies of David that God is using. And so God uses people. Sometimes, I mean, I've been involved in this many, many times. You have a brother or you have a student or you have a, a close friend who you can just sense is struggling with something. Some, it's a sinful issue or whatever, and you you go up to them, you put your arm around them, and you say, Wait, you're struggling with something, aren't you? You're, you're doing battle with something, aren't you? Oh, I really am. And your, your words, your comfort, your encouragement, your prayer for them, maybe even, hey, you have got to deal with this. Knock it off. I'm being a little bit sarcastic there and a little cynical almost, but they're the kind of thing God will use other people. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about, if you know a brother is in sin, go to that brother, talk to that brother, correct that brother. Galatians 6.1, Paul talks about you who are spiritual, you who are walking by the Spirit, correct those who are not. James at the end of his epistle talks, you, you who are spiritual leaders, bring back those who are wandering. In the word there's "planeto," like the planets, wandering ones. So it's that responsibility that we have to one another. And even in this situation that's David's enemies, it can be friends. God uses people as instruments of his discipline. And then the third instrument are circumstances. God uses the circumstances of our lives to get our attention to deal with the things that he wants us to deal with. He's just disciplined, he's chastening us, he's shaping us, he's molding us, he's sanding off those rough edges and he will use circumstances to get our attention to deal with whatever it is he wants us to deal with. And so In this particular situation, the specifics we don't know, but he tells us he is in this situation because of his enemies, but he recognizes God is superintending all of this. So then these victorious, uh, triumphant, fantastic words that end the psalm in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, meaning those at the end of verse 7, his enemies that God has used as an instrument to chasten him. Why? Because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts My prayer, the confidence, the certainty that God has heard, God has answered, God has accepted, God has restored. So the consequence of that, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. The same word that's up in verse 2. And they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment, quickly. What's happened? The fortunes are reversed. God now will deal with those who are the enemies of David that God has used to chasten David. That's called justice. It's the same thing that you see, if I can broaden this now. It's the same thing you see in how God dealt with his people Israel in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, it's, of course, Jeremiah is right before Nebuchadnezzar destroys and conquers Jerusalem in 586 BC. But anyway, Jeremiah says that God is going to raise up the Babylonians, and they will be the ones who will discipline us, but then God will discipline them. In the book of Habakkuk, which is one of the little minor prophets, Habakkuk in chapter 1 is is talking to the Lord about all the iniquity and immorality and corruption that he sees in Judah. And he says, God, why aren't you doing anything? In chapter 2 of Habakkuk, God says, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians who will chasten you. That's the word that's used there. But then when I am done... With them chasing you, I will discipline them. Indeed, the word is stronger. I will judge them. So I'm saying all that because this, what David is doing in verse 10, is David knows, David knows how God works. And God will turn the tables. God will will reverse the fortunes. And those whom he used to chasten, God will now deal with them. And that is called talionic justice. That's God's justice. And that is always comforting. That's always assuring that God always, always, always is in control of the things that happen in our lives. And ultimately, he works out his wonderful plan of chastening and doing it in a just and uh, and amazing way. I find Psalm 6... One of those psalms that are important for us to every now and then just read and review. The chastening hand of God is real in our lives. As I said, it can be at the simple level of just His Word. As we read His Word and we're confronted with His Word, and we understand His commands and we understand His 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 standards, and we change, we grow, we're transformed. That's the chastening hand of God. The word of God chastens. But he, um, he uses people and he uses circumstances. But he never does it in an unfair way. He never does it in an unjust way. It is always, always, always for our good. In the words of Hebrews 12, it confirms we're his child and it confirms that he loves us. Okay. Any questions? Psalm 6.
1: Yeah, i um... You mentioned a word a second ago, his something justice, and I just didn't catch the word in the...
0: Oh, um, talionic justice. How do you spell that? Uh, T-A-L-I-O-N-I-C. T-A-L-I-O-N-I-C, talionic. That is the system of justice in the Bible. Uh, That is, it's summarized among other things, an eye for eye, a tooth for tooth. It's a, uh, that is a very important concept to get, uh, to get your arms around. The guys that have been with me for a long time, they all know what that means. Most <laughs> of them have written thought papers on it. I just lied, that's not true, but uh, anyway. But anyway, no, no, does no. That Russ, this answer, Russ, does that answer your question? Are you okay on that? You can look that up, that's, a, that's really a wonderful, that's a wonderful concept to really understand the biblical idea of tallying justice. Jim, uh,
2: when he disciplines the people who disciplines the people that need to be disciplined, that is, uh, how do you find uh, justice in that?
0: Well, I mean, uh, that's a a very broad question, so I'll have to answer it broadly, but whatever... um, In this case with David, uh, he speaks in verse 7 of his enemies, of his foes, that presumably were the instrument God was using. What did they do to David? How did they treat David? Um, What were they saying about David? Um, I mean, again, we don't know the specifics. But perhaps um, what they did or what they said or the charges they were leveling against David were untrue. They were hurtful. They undermined his authority. I'm, I'm just trying to think of all the different possibilities. And so that's that's not right. That's wrong. That could be slanderous. It could be libelous. I mean, whatever the specifics were, it, it could have been very harmful. That needs to be dealt with. Justice insists that be dealt with. God will deal with them. And so David says in verse 10, God's going to turn the tables. And whatever they did, whatever they said, however they slandered him, however they undermined his authority, God's now going to deal with them. And the ultimate end of that, it will be just. It will be equitable. It will be fair. Because God's the one who's doing it. And that's why, when, in re-answer to Russ's question, that's talionic justice. There, for, every, for every infraction of God's perfect, righteous, ethical, standard, and law, there is an established judgment for that. And that is what in, you see that in the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I don't think that means literally, but for everything, there's the law of retribution. And God will meet that out perfectly. And in this case, again, whatever the specifics are, David understands that. I'm back in my relationship with the Lord. I've learned my lesson. He's heard and accepted me in my prayer you guys are going to see the tables turn because that's the nature of my God. I have a question, uh, observation. Um,
1: Fred, how I kind of understand the thing that you're asking is that if God lifts the hedge because you're going to be chastened, that doesn't necessarily create agency. You know, one of the things I struggled with was the whole Pharaoh thing. God hardened Pharaoh's heart right? And that's my question. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then holds him responsible for it, right? Which I think is kind of where you're going with that question. It's like, you use Babylon to judge these people. What? We did what you asked, right? Well, no, you know, just evil doing what you want, and God just let you go through the hedgerow and get these guys, and now you've got to pay the price, so the, the, my question was, you know, is that an appropriate application, and you know, how does that apply to the in the Exodus of hardening Pharaoh's heart?
0: Are you wanting Fred to answer that, or me? No, I'm no, I'm, uh, I'm making an observation to Fred <laughs> oh, okay. about oh. lifting the hedge and letting yeah. the bad
1: guys through, which is yeah. your chastening, and then I'm saying. Does that really apply to the sparrow thing because that bothered me for a while, and that's how I resolved it, right? yeah, and that's but I think there's a deeper uh, understanding that I don't quite get there, and then I'm swinging back to Jim and saying, there's a deeper <laughs> understanding there that I
2: don't quite get that's that's right on, that's a classic, I think, and jim's uh, Jim
0: you were cutting off there, Fred. I didn't hear what you said.
2: Oh, I thought maybe you know you could add some, fleshing that out that uh, Russ brought up. So, I mean, it's I mean, it as well demonstrated, wasn't it? Uh,
0: his justice. Well, I I mean, you are, I mean, Russ, you know, ultimately you are asking one of those excruciating questions that does. Uh, raise its head every now and then in scripture we believe that god is not the author of evil we believe that god never does anything that's evil and yet at the same time we teach that god is absolutely sovereign and that his providence is real and so when you come across um, a situation like you do in exodus 7 8 9 10 and so on where you see pharaoh is in effect doing battle with God. And God keeps revealing himself to Pharaoh through the plague. Plague one, the Niles turned into blood. And what does the text say? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Plague two, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Plague three, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you have a couple more of those. And then, plague, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul lifts the window of God's sovereignty in that very problematic text. I created Pharaoh for my glory. Now, when you go through the text of Exodus 7, you see the complicity of Pharaoh there. He hardened his heart. How is he responding to God's revelation? He's hardening his heart. I don't care what's happening. I don't care what you do, Moses. I am not listening to you, and I am not bowing the knee to your God. Get out of here." Well, that's gonna go on for a while. But it's exactly the same thing, that tension that seems almost unmanageable for us, with Judas. When Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, He says to them as they're eating Passover meal, tonight one of you is going to betray me, according to the scriptures. Then what does he say? But woe to that man, it would be better if he were never born. Right there you see both things. right, utter total sovereignty of God, that Judas is being used by God to betray his son to the Roman soldiers. or At the same time, Judas is absolutely culpable for what he did in betraying Jesus. Can you bring those two together? I can't. Uh-huh. I can't satisfactorily bring those two together. But the Bible is saying to us, as with Pharaoh, believe both of these things to be true. And you, 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 it, it, just I have lived with this theological tension for 36 years. I've been studying this stuff I mean because you can't get away from it you can't resolve that tension you can't satisfactorily say well now I understand how both those things can be true and and I don't think this side of heaven we're going to completely so what we see is God is using these enemies of David to chasten David but God is going to hold the enemies of David accountable for what they're doing to David why? Because he's a just God.
2: God doesn't put a harness around our decisions. Um, would you would you say? I mean, we still have freedom to make our own decisions. In doing so, they're either in line with God's will, or they're not, and we're not innocent of what God's will is for our lives. Um, would you would you say, or how how would you relate to
1: that idea? But we will not boast. You know, even our faith is a gift from God. And in James, you know, um, vessels are created for noble and ignoble purposes. So, what are where is our agency? You know, there's a whole schism in Christendom <laughs> that uh, is. Uh,
0: Well, now listen, we we are getting into a patch of theological weeds that has been a topic of discussion for 2,000 years. I'm pretty certain on Wednesday at 1231, we are not going to resolve it. We got it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if it's all right, we're going to leave this now. (laughs) Because honestly, part of the struggle and, and I'm going to add this now. I'm going to move into chapter seven or Psalm seven. What we are dealing with, dealing with here, men, is we're trying to use human language to describe the workings of God. And human language, when God is the subject, is, is often very difficult. and it usually it usually doesn't do the complete adequate job we'd like it to do because each word has to be defined, each term has to be clarified, and it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle for us. What's the human language I use to resolve the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsible freedom? Good luck. You're you're going to struggle with that. There's a wonderful book by Randy Alcorn um, that came out a couple years ago. It's called Responsible Freedom. And uh, I don't know if you know who Alcorn, he wrote that magnificent book called heaven but it's really a it's really a, a night nice, he does a really nice job there it, it parts of it are a bit heavy theological a lot of it is eminently practical where he really does help us to understand what free agency looks like in a world where there is a sovereign god and that there's always tension when you have those two items but so i'll kind of leave it at that i i it's, a, it's quite a wonderful treatment of that I really like the book. Psalm 7. I've entitled this, An Appeal of the Innocent. An Appeal of the Innocent. Here is, and again, this is a Psalm of David. It tells us in the superscription. It tells us when he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite. We have no idea what he means by that. Uh, the 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 incident that the superscription is referring to, we don't know. It, it doesn't fit anything in the account of David's life in in uh, in Samuel, First Samuel, and into Second Samuel. So we're just we're not sure. But apparently, apparently, it's something like this. Whoever of Cush, the Benjamite, he said some things about David. He was saying, he was leveling charges against David that were absolutely not true. There were lies. It was apparently slanderous. Uh, It was uh, attacking the very character of David. And David didn't know what to do. And in that kind of a situation, what he tells us, and this is what this this psalm is, is really all about it's a little bit longer than the ones we've been studying but the only place he can go is god he's asking god he's asking god to be his advocate he's asking god to be his refuge and savior he's asking god to fight for him he's asking god to to be the judge to to rectify this Lord, there's nowhere else it can go. I don't know what else to do. And so this appeal to God is remarkable. It's another lament psalm, but it's, it's the kind of lament in a situation that must have been horrific, but at the same time, it's a lament that's rooted in his faith. He knows his God. And in this tech kind of situation, that the text reveals there's nowhere else he can go. So with that, hopefully a little bit of helpful background, let me read the first uh, two verses. And if you're following in the little outline, you can see how I, I put this together. Remember he's innocent. Whatever the charges are, David is innocent. Oh Lord, my God in you do I take refuge. And that, is a very familiar thing in the Psalms. The psalmist often says that. In you, I take my refuge, etc. You're the only place where there's safety and protection. The only place where there's security I need. You're the only place I can go. So his appeal, save me from all my pursuers. Deliver me. It, the language there is snatch me, pluck me out of the dangerous situation I'm in. Like lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. This again is it's it's a simile, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. His what, apparently his physical being is in danger, but his reputation is in danger. He is absolutely being shredded and torn apart. This is this is biting, hurtful, destructive, slanderous. It is destroying everything about David and his character, and there's nothing he can do about it. Apparently, he doesn't know what to do. This is so serious, and he uses this this simile like a lion. They're ripping me apart, and so thoroughly is it occurring. There's not going to be anything left. They're going to totally destroy my character, totally destroy everything I am and represent. So what does he do? Oh, Lord, my God. Same thing we saw in verse 1. If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Now, apparently, whatever whatever is going on here, David is summarizing the charges, the slanderous things that are being said. Lord, if I've done this, what they're saying about me, if I've done this, wrong in my hands, we don't know what that means. Repaid my friend with it, we don't know what that means. Plundered without cause, we don't know what he means by that. But whatever the charges are, these are slanderous, biting, hurtful charges. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. That is, kill me. He knows he's innocent. And he is saying to God, because of who you are, Because you are a just God, and your talionic justice always rings true. If I've done the things they're saying I've done, Lord, you take care of it. You pursue my soul. You make sure that they're they're able to bring justice to me. Trample my life to the ground. Even indeed, let my glory in the dust, lay my wood in the dust, kill me. Take my life. So he's willing to make this extraordinary claim. Lord if what they're saying is true. But Lord since I am innocent and since none of this is true. Verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger lift up your lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Wow. Because David is innocent of these slanderous charges, he has every right to appeal to God for vindication. That's what he's doing. Vindicate me, God. You fight for me. You be my advocate. And these are bold, bold superlatives here. Arise, lift yourself, awake. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm preaching there. I'm really raising my voice, but this is extraordinary. I mean, it's almost the language of insistence, almost the language of demand. God, you act. You vindicate me. And presumably, because he's declared his innocence, and God knows that, he has every right to appeal to God for vindication. God will vindicate his children. God will be the advocate for his children. 1 John two one declares to us that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. When Satan brings a charge, Jesus stands up and says, he, she, belongs to me. They're my child. I've purchased them with my blood. And it's that same kind of sense, this boldness. It's almost audacious on the part of David to appeal to God like this. You act. Arise, lift yourself up. Awake. (laughs) For you have appointed a judgment. It is time for you to summon the wheels of your justice and act. Verse 7. What time is it here? Okay, we've got a few minutes yet. Let the assemblies of the people be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Call The witnesses. Call the witnesses from the people. Let them gather around you, O judge of the universe. Over it, return on high. Come. Return on high. Come. Come, O God. Judge. Vindicate me. Public witnesses. The the evidence is there. But God, you have to do this. (laughs) And so then he appeals. And it's 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 really quite an amazing, it's really quite an, an amazing statement. The Lord judges the peoples. And the, the, the title there is Yahweh. Yahweh judges the people. He is the ultimate sovereign over this earth, and he's ultimately the sovereign judge, and he's ultimately the sovereign purveyor of justice. The Lord judges the people. No one, no one is absolved from that. Judge me, O Lord. I'm I'm willing to accept that. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. Lord, you evaluate. You evaluate my life. You evaluate what they're saying. You look at my integrity, look at my righteousness. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You test. This is how the ESV translates this. You test the minds and the hearts, oh, righteous God. You who test those. Let's think about that. I, I wish we had more time. I may have to carry this into next week actually but what I'm really interested in doing here in in verses eight and nine is broadening this into some thoughts about God as judge about God as the judge of the universe about God as the one who is the purveyor of justice in his world and what I'm very much interested in is that phrase that's in the end of verse 9. You who test the minds and hearts. That is the penetrating knowledge of God. Literally, (laughs) this isn't particularly, but it's the way in which the ancient world, you you test the hearts and kidneys. Because those words were the words that were associated with how, in the ancient world, they looked at the human being and so on. I'll say more about that next week. But this penetrating knowledge of God, it isn't just a surface, superficial. It is the attitudes, the motivation, the heart of all people. So next week, what I want to do is really delve into those two verses, verse 8, and particularly verse 9. There's a lot I'd like to say about this and broaden it to a a little bit of a larger uh, teaching about the judge, God as judge and his justice. And then we'll look at the remaining part of the Psalm 10 through 17. And then I don't know if we're even going to get into it, but Psalm 8, is, is I've chosen to end our study with that. It's a fantastic Psalm because a lot of this in the new Testament is applied to Jesus. And so I want to spend a lot of time on that. There's a lot of bunny trails that I'd like to try to go through as we study Psalm 8. Now we've done a lot today. Is everybody with me? Any questions before we leave? All right. Very good. Well, thank you guys. I'm going to pray here and then we'll, we'll sign off and, get into the rest of our day. Heavenly Father, we are, um, we are so thankful that we have the privilege of studying the Word of God, and especially right now studying these psalms. Um, psalm 6 is, is such a precious psalm in so many ways, and I hope the way we tried to approach this and, and teach this and share this was meaningful to the men. It's the chastening, the disciplinary hand of God upon one of his own, in this case, David. Every one of us, if we're very honest, very transparent, has experienced your chastening. We know what that's like. Hebrews 12 tells us that you chasten us because we're your children. You chasten us because you love us. And it always has a purpose to restore us. Lord, I love how David puts this at the end of his his whole section. He he wants to continue to be able to serve you and to bring glory to you throughout the rest of his life. He He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to have his life. He wants to live on because that's how he can continue to bring glory. There's a man who knew God. There's a man who understood the core mission of his life, and we are thankful that we can reflect on that. I pray that each man in this This class really does see that one of the main purposes that the Lord has created each one of us is that we become the representatives of His glory. We represent Him. We want to do that well. And thank you, too, for just the little bit of an insight that we're learning about what do we do when we're slandered and terrible things are said about us by our enemies? How do we respond? We're not quite done with that, but that's part of what Psalm 7 is all about. The Psalms are rich, the Psalms are valuable for us to study. We see the heart and soul of individuals who walk with you. They're not afraid to say things to you. They're not afraid even to hurl charges at you, but it's always resolved in some way as they worship and in a powerful way, summarize that they know you, they know your character, they know your purposes. Thank you, Lord, that we can walk with you in this level of intimacy, we can walk with you in this personal, relational love relationship that's based on the new covenant. That that covenant relationship that David talked about, we have a similar covenant relationship. We experience that same chesed day in and day out as we walk in loving obedience with you. Bless these men. May they be strong men of faith, strong men of God who represent you well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, men. See you next week. Stay well. Stay safe.